Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. Now today I want to begin uh, by just letting us know, maybe, maybe not letting you know for the first time, but reminding you maybe, for some of you, that one of the greatest experiences of the Christian life, one of the greatest experiences of the Christian life is when God clearly gives his will to you and you know what his will is for your life. That is one of the best things of the Christian life, when God clearly uh, shows you. Maybe it's a decision that needs to be made made, and it's like, okay, this is what I need to do and God lays it out for you. Maybe it's a door that you thought was closed and then it was open to you. And uh, you're just like, wow, okay, I'm gonna go through this. This is obviously of the Lord. Maybe it's a person, a relationship that God brings to your life to encourage you and to lift you up and to strengthen you. Uh, and, And you can see how God is providentially guiding your steps. And that's a wonderful thing about the Christian life when that happens and and knowing exactly that God has revealed uh, his will to you. Because when that happens, what what, what happens in your own heart anyway, is that you can then move forward with complete confidence, knowing uh, that God is directing you. And then even if things don't turn out how you think they should turn out, right? That's always the struggle. Even if things don't turn out the way that you think they should turn out, you can still move forward, not in, not in second-guessing your own actions, right? You're not second-guessing yourself, but in knowing for sure that God has led me here, and I'm going to go through this door, and I'm going to trust him, even if things are not working out for me. That is the most freeing way to live life, that no matter the circumstances, you know that God has put you here, God has placed you here, and you're here for a reason. And that is a freeing way to live life, not worrying about, oh, did I do enough, right? And that's the struggle we have. Did I do enough? Did I work hard enough at it? Rather than just trusting God. Well, as we join up with our missionary dream team, I mean, that's who they are. We've got Paul, Uh, the Apostle Paul. We've got Silas. uh, We've got Timothy now added to the team. And we've also got uh, um, uh, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts. He's along with them. And they are at a moment where they know exactly what God wants them to do. And that's what I want you to see here right at the very beginning. They know what God wants them to do. How do they know that? Well, because of the Macedonian call that came to Paul in a vision at night that came to him from the Lord that said, this is where you are supposed to go. You are supposed to go to Macedonia. Remember, they'd been wandering around for a little bit. They had tried to go to different places. They had tried to go to Asia Minor. And every time the Holy Spirit had said to them, no, 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 this is not where you need to go. You're not going to go to this place. And then finally, when they're in Troas, God's clear direction was given to them. And so what do they do? They immediately step out by faith. They immediately follow God, which is what we all should do when God reveals his will to us. We should immediately step out and say, okay, I'm going to do it. Look at verse number 10 of Acts chapter 16. It says, and after he, that's uh, Paul, after he had seen the vision, And immediately, it says, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering, that means they had come to the conclusion that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. They knew, God says, go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. Look at verse 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course uh, to uh, Thracia. I've been trying to say this all week long and I keep messing up. I knew I was going to mess it up. Uh, Samothracia. Uh, and the next day to Neapolis and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. Well, the journey from Troas was a two-day boat journey. And so it says the first day that they got on a boat and they went to the island of Samothracia. I'm going to try to say it right. And it was an overnight stop. Now, this is a beautiful place. Look at this. 
This is a beautiful island there in the Aegean Sea. There's this mountain that raises up some 5,500 feet above sea level. It just sort of juts, as you can tell, juts right out of, uh, out of the ocean. I really want to go there now after uh, I spent maybe a little bit too long looking at photos from this place. I'd like to go there. And, and uh, it's a beautiful place, not a bad place for a stopover for the Apostle Paul and his missionary team. And uh, maybe they enjoyed dinner on the beach there and uh, had a nice little fire going. Uh, but the next day they got back in the boat and they traveled then to Neapolis, which was a port city of Macedonia, where from there, they walked uh, about 16 kilometers right up to the city of Philippi, which is where uh, we're going to be today. Now, Philippi, I'll give you a little bit of background about the city. It's important for us to know this for what happens later on in the story. So Philippi was what you call a Roman colony. It was uh, named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. We know his name, but his father, Philip, is the one who uh, essentially named this. He kind of took it over, of course, as things went back then. Uh, he began to develop the uh, gold mining in that area. And then later on, it came under Roman domination in uh, 168 BC, and then was enlarged a little bit. The city was built out a bit around 42 BC when Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and uh, Cassius in that area. And so then the city kind of developed a little bit more, grew a little bit larger. But it was in 31 BC that Octavian granted this city the status of a Roman colony. They gave to Philippi the status of a Roman colony, meaning it was a part of Rome. So if you got to Philippi, as you entered the city, you knew, I am entering Rome. Now, this is a big deal, because when you became a Roman colony, you then, uh, the laws of Rome applied to you. Uh, different privileges, of course, um, uh, different aspects of what it meant to be a Roman colony then was applied to that city. Interestingly enough about the city, many, uh, Rome actually encouraged some of their military veterans to retire there. So it was kind of almost like a retirement place, but it had uh, gold mines. It was a really interesting city, but it was a Roman colony. And you say, well, why is this uh, so important? Well, it's important later on in the passage. So just keep that in the back of your mind. It is a Roman colony. Paul, later on in his letter to the Roman, or to the Philippians, sorry, mentioned that. Archaeology states that it was a little Rome is what they called it. So it was a Roman colony. Well, it's here to this Roman colony, Philippi, that the missionary team begins to minister. And here's what's so cool. Here's what's so cool about what's happening here. Without the Roman government even knowing about it, Almost right under their noses, if you want to call it that, the gospel lands in Europe for the very first time. The gospel lands in Europe. And what happens here in our story today, the beginnings of the gospel and of a church in Philippi here, what is taking place today is going to be life-changing or generation-changing. It's going to change the continent up until this point, even, what happens in the story today. And, and when you think about this, I know for me, when you think about, oh, the gospel coming to Europe, you think it's going to be some incredible thing, right? You think, man, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people, and Paul's going to, you know, shoot fire out of his hands, and there's going to be this incredible thing, and everyone's going to be like, whoa, you know, Christianity is where it's at. But what's so interesting is that Luke, out of all the people that come to Christ, he only records for us the stories of three different people. I thought it was really interesting. I mean, this is, a, this is a landmark event for Christianity, for faith. And yet he only records the stories of three people who came to faith in Philippi. And, and you wonder, you're like, well, why did he only record three of them? I think one of the main reasons is to show to us the diversity of the transformational power of the gospel. All of these people that we're going to see today come from different ethnic backgrounds. 
They come from different uh, society, societies, you could even call it, or, or, or economic backgrounds, definitely different economic backgrounds, different experiences, uh, different uh, past, but yet all three of them are marvelously transformed by the power of the gospel. That's why the title of my message today is The Gospel Power in Philippi, because that's what we see. We see the power of the gospel transforming lives. And it's, we've got to remember, church, that the gospel does have the power to transform lives. You realize that? We say it, we go to church, yes, the gospel can change lives. And then we go out and we act like it can't, <laughs> right? It can, the gospel changes lives. And so today we're gonna study these stories. And to me, they're stories of victory, gospel victory in a Roman colony. And we should be encouraged as we look at the story here and as we consider our own city of Vancouver and the people from all around the world and all the different places that we come from and, and different uh, aspects of our lives. And yet through the gospel, we can become one and be reminded of the joy that we have as a church family. How all of us from different places and all around the world are here in Vancouver and from different backgrounds and from different situations, how we are one in Jesus Christ and how we can only give that credit to Jesus himself. That's the only reason that we are one in Christ. Well, uh, I want to I get right into the message today. You say, you're already in it. Yes, we're in it, but we're going to get right into it now. Okay, so point number one, if you're taking notes, we're going to see here how the gospel transforms a wealthy businesswoman. The gospel transforms a wealthy businesswoman. Look at verse number 13. It says, and on the Sabbath, we, that's Paul and his companions there, went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the woman, which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. That's a key phrase right there. It is the Lord who did the work, opened her heart, and she attended, paid attention unto the things which were spoken of Paul. You know, when you enter the gates of Philippi or really any other Roman cities, there would be an inscription over the gates that would say uh, that no strange religions are allowed here. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it uh, in a simpler way, but essentially any strange or different religions that didn't fit within the Roman culture were actually not allowed to even be started. So that could be one of the reasons that Paul, when he got there, he saw that and he was like, okay. And so he went to a riverside and found some people that were praying there. The other reason, of course, as to why these people would be at a river, which which is about two kilometers away. The, another reason they would have been there is because in order for there to be a synagogue in a city, there needed to be 10 men uh, to make up or to start a synagogue. So maybe there were not 10 Jewish men in the city. Of course, that was Paul's plan or not his plan, but his, his normal route is he would go to a synagogue, begin to preach and teach. Uh, and then he would begin to, uh, of course, expand out from there. But either way, we see Paul down at the riverside. There's some women there. He kind of busts into a ladies prayer meeting, I think, and he gets there and he begins to tell them about Jesus. Jesus Christ, he begins to tell them about the salvation that the Messiah had come. And it's there that this woman named Lydia, who was a wealthy businesswoman, she was from Thyatira, which was on the other side of the Aegean Sea. She was there and she was seeking God. And it was there that her heart was open and she was marvelously saved. Now, Lydia was somebody, if we just want to understand a little bit about her, she was somebody who had everything that the world had to offer. You say, how, how do you know that about her? Well, it tells us that she was a seller of purple. Did you see that there in the passage? A seller of purple. Now, that's not crayons, okay? Uh, that is, a, that is a, a specific dye for clothing. And, and if somebody was in the business of purple, here's what it meant. It meant that you exclusively dealt with the super rich, 
purple, any fabrics that had purple in it, some of you have some purple in your fabrics today, just be, be excited. Uh, so, uh, it, that meant that you were very wealthy, that you could afford it. It was a very highly sought after commodity. Uh, it was made by them diving down to a specific spot in the Aegean Sea, pulling up a certain type of shell from a certain type of uh, uh, um, animal, right? And grinding up the shell to create this specific color. And so if she dealt and was a seller of purple, that meant she dealt with royalty. That meant that she dealt with people who had tons of money. I was trying to think of it today. To me, it's kind of like being a, uh, a Bugatti salesman, right? Or a Rolls Royce salesman. Some of you are like, what's a Bugatti? Look it up. They're pretty incredible. Uh, a Rolls Royce salesman, meaning, you know, people, you're not just going to get, uh, by the way, I'm not just going to roll into a Rolls Royce, you know, and be like, huh, I'm really thinking, no, 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 it's not going to happen. They're going to be people with means, people with money. And so uh, that's what she dealt in. Of course, we know she's from Thyatira, but then we also see here she's also in Philippi. And so she was an entrepreneur. She was expanding her business. Uh, Later, we'll see she has a home and a home big enough to house guests, which that right there tells you a lot about her wealth. The fact that she had everything that this world could give to her, all the financial wealth, but we see her here, uh, we see here, her here, that's a hard one. We see her here at a riverside seeking God, seeking God, seeking for answers. To me, it reminds me of Cornelius, remember in Acts chapter 10, who was seeking God, and he figured out that the Jews' religion was worth investigating, and then God sent somebody to him through Peter. He just needed someone to show him the way, and Lydia just needed someone to show her the way to Jesus Christ. And I can't help but think of the hundreds of thousands of people in our city who are seeking pleasure and seeking, we use that word in, in the sense of they're seeking to fulfill themselves, seeking to fulfill themselves and their own desires in the pleasures of this world, in the wealth of this world, in items of this world. But yet at the end of the day, they're still seeking answers. Such were some of you here today. You had, you had a, a good life, but yet something was not right. You were seeking, you were looking for something. And Jesus is always the answer to that. I found it interesting this week. I did a little, uh, I'm kind of a nerd, you know, and so I did a little bit of Google uh, trend searches. And I was just sort of looking at the, the Google searches that trended from this entire year. So I started about February and I started looking for my own searches, but then you also started just seeing the trends worldwide. It's really interesting. There's some apps you can go and, and look at that. And I found it so interesting that right around March, end of March, all of April and into May, there was a huge trend worldwide in searches for God. Searches about God. Searches about the Bible. Searches about pestilence in the Bible. Did you know that in April, is really interesting, in Canada, one of the most searched for things was what does pestilence mean in the Bible? That was one of the biggest searches in Canada. I thought that was really interesting, right? And, uh, and so here, what I'm trying to get across is that there are people who are searching. Now, it's brought maybe a pandemic to push them to that. But regardless of that, people who seemingly have everything, have all the answers, are searching. And our job as Christians are to be people who point others to Christ. You know, remember what uh, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, he said uh, unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's what we have to remember here, that it's Jesus that does the saving. And Lydia was transformed by the gospel. It was what she was searching for. And as soon as she got saved, it transformed her. Look at the next verse, verse 15. And when she was baptized and her household she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us, meaning she's like, No, come on, no arguments. You're coming to live with me. You're going to come and stay with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. Here's the immediate effect of her receiving Christ. First of all, she shared it with her family. We know that because it's that her, her household believed. That would have been her, her own family and any servants that she might have had in her household. 
She came and shared with them, and they also believed. Then they were baptized, which is that public display of what God had done in their heart. And so this is a big deal. So it immediately affected her that way. But the other effect is that somebody who had means who would maybe never invite a ragtag group of men, five men who were missionaries, who would never invite them to her home. She says, no, no, you're coming to my place, and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to minister to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use what God has blessed me with, and I'm going to be an encouragement uh, to these men who are preaching uh, the gospel, and immediately hospitality came out of her. And I, I love that. I love that picture, that uh, 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 the picture that we see here of Lydia, where uh, we see both generosity and hospitality working together. Those are true tenets of the Christian life, hospitality and generosity. They go together. And, and later on in Philippians chapter four, Paul, when he re- writes about the church, he references this church specifically, and he talks about their generosity, and he talks about their support, and he talks about how they specifically helped him out. And I can't help but think when you go through the book of Philippians, he's talking about Lydia more than likely. He's talking about her and the example that she set to other people and, and how she used her home as a tool for ministry. And, and it's such a reminder for us, church, to be seeking hospitality with one another, seeking to care for one another. Extending hospitality is not the same as entertaining. Now, this is where we get confused sometimes, right? Entertaining shows off. <laughs> hospitality just shares. You know, sometimes we think like, I can never, you know, have someone to my house or, or to my apartment or have somebody to my basement suite or whatever. And I can, you know, I'm just, it's not, you know, I need to, I haven't redone it yet. I want to paint, you know, and I need to do this. And I got that pile of stuff over there I've been meaning to take care of for eight years, you know, and, and I need to move some things around and I just, I, you know, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. Listen, hospitality isn't showing off. Hospitality is simply sharing what God has given to you and being an encouragement to somebody else. And that's what we see here in the life of Lydia, and the gospel changed her. But we see God continue to work as he changed somebody else. Point number two, we see how the gospel frees a demon-possessed girl. Man, that gives you chills down your spine just thinking about it right now. The gospel is about to free a demon-possessed girl. Look at verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. That's the foretelling of the future. The same. So this girl, and we're assuming her masters as well, followed Paul and us and cried saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. You know, as we head into this section of the passage, we have to remember, first of all, church, that we are fighting a spiritual battle. We've always got to keep that in the front of our mind. We are fighting a spiritual battle. Jesus, in fact, was always trying to get his disciples, remember, look at things spiritually. Look at things uh, with a spiritual mindset. And so it's obvious to us that in a city like Philippi, where obviously there were people searching, that Satan would be at work doing everything he could to deceive and to confuse the people there. And it's heartbreaking to read about this young girl. The Bible specifically calls her a damsel, which means she was anywhere from the age of 8 to 11. 8 to 11. Now think about that for a moment. A young girl sold or bought or born into slavery with men who are her masters, who she is bondage to, but also we see her enslaved to a spirit. It says a spirit of the divination that possessed her and controlled her. The original phrase behind the word spirit, uh, or the, of the phrase spirit of divination reveals to us really the horror of what was going on in this little girl's life. The literal reading of that in the Greek is that she had the spirit of Python. The spirit of Python. 
Now, according to myth, Greek myth, Python was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo that Apollo eventually killed. Later on, that word python, or have a spirit of python, came to mean somebody who was demon-possessed through whom the python spoke. And it was this spirit that demonized or was inside this poor young girl that revealed to her elements of the future or elements of things that might come that these men who owned her would use to make money off of this possession of this young girl. I mean, think about an eight or a nine-year-old girl. And the life that she must have been in. I don't want you to just glaze over this. I want you to know, church, that this is the goal of Satan for mankind. Satan's desire is to treat us in this way, to use us, to abuse us, to have us under his total control, to be manipulated all for his purposes. That's what his desire is for mankind. Now, praise the Lord, as we're those that are saved, we have the Spirit of God, and we are not susceptible to possession. We are susceptible to oppression, being oppressed by the devil. We cannot be possessed by the devil. And yet this girl here, obviously, in some way, had opened herself up to this, and she was possessed for Satan's purpose. And right now, He's trying to deter the gospel in the city of Philippi. I got to tell you, Satan does not care about you. Do you realize that? He does not care about you. He does not care about man, about mankind. People think, oh, you know, if people believe in spiritual things, you know, Satan, they're like, oh, Satan just wants me to have a good time, right? That's what he wants for me. He wants me to enjoy life and just have fun and not worry about, no, no, no. He does not care about you. And it's evidence in this girl's life right here. He, I mean, he's treating her the opposite of how someone who cares for you should, should, should treat someone. And so for days, this girl followed the missionaries crying out, these men are servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. I, it gives me chills to think about what that voice of Python through a girl would have sounded like. Now, now at the same time that we read this and we're like, well, wait a minute, she's kind of saying a good thing though, Right? You know, somebody once said, any advertising is good advertising, even if it's bad advertising. (laughs) And so what's going on here? You know, because what it looks like is she's affirming the gospel, right? She's affirming the fact that Paul and Silas are showing people the way of salvation. But listen, Satan is using her to infiltrate is what he's trying to do. He's trying to neutralize what is happening. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know it because I know the character of Satan. The character of the devil is deception. He is a liar. Uh, uh, The Bible calls him the father of lies. He is a deceiver. And so anytime we see him at work, there's something else going on behind the scenes. Remember, he quoted God to Eve in the garden. Remember that? He directly quoted God. To Jesus in the wilderness, he directly quoted scripture to him. And it is not above him to use the word of God or to try to seem like he is for God in order to deceive people. How many cults today, right? How many cults today in our world use terms like born again, uh, 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 the kingdom, use terms like, uh, 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 and they'll even use our Bible. And they'll even defend their cultish, wrong, sinful position from the Bible to us. And, and, and it's deceived many hundreds, maybe millions of people over the years by deceivers that are out there. But at, just because they use the Bible, it doesn't change the fact that it's Satan at work. 
Now, immediately we're like super suspicious, right? Right now, pastor, are you being used? No, I'm not. Okay, <laughs> I stand here today before God. I want to preach to you the word of God. Uh, I'm not here to make you suspicious of me. But listen, something else is happening here. So even though she's saying, you know, these men are servants of God, they're showing you the way of salvation. Paul knew something was going on behind the scenes here. Paul recognized this because, okay, you got to think, there must have been a temptation for Paul and Silas to be like, yeah, yeah, what she's saying, right? Listen to her. Yeah, yeah, she's telling the truth. There might have been that temptation. But here's the thing that Paul understood. That is, that I, please do not miss this today. This is a really important part today. Please don't miss this. Paul is realizing that if he endorses what this girl says, if he says, oh yeah, she's promoting the gospel, that's great. Let's just continue to preach to crowds. If he endorsed what this girl was saying, then what would happen is that his endorsement would then carry on to everything else that she had been saying. And it wasn't that what she was saying in the moment wasn't true. It was true. But everything else she had said is not true. So say, say with me here. Listen, as believers, we're to be truth tellers, Right? That we are to be known by being people of the truth. We should always stand up for the truth. We should represent the truth. We should promote the truth. And we have to be watchful as believers of what we represent and of who we promote. Now, I'm going to say something here. I want you to get this. There are a lot of organizations, there are a lot of people today in our world who say good things. Do you realize that? There's a lot of organizations that say good things. But I want to remind you today, it is not the only thing they are saying. Some of you will catch up with what I'm trying to say here. They say good things, but not everything they say is right. And so we've got to be careful as believers who we give our support to. We have to be careful as believers who we agree with, even if the thing is good in the moment, if the thing is good at the time at that time. And what they're saying may be perfectly right and even line up with scripture, but we have to look deeper than that. Does that make sense? We've got to look deeper than that. Maybe, maybe those of us, maybe we've been like, wow, that's cool. This girl's following us and man, she's, you know, she's helping us out. No, no, there was a lot more to it. And we need to be wise like that in our lives today. We need to look at what we lend our support to, what we retweet, what we repost, what we talk about. We've got to be aware that we're not just supporting a good thing in the moment. If there's things underneath that we need to be aware of, we need to be careful of our testimony and what we're giving support to. Does that make sense? We need to be aware. We need to be wise as Christians. And so she followed them for days proclaiming this, and then Paul had enough, verse 18. And this she did many days, but Paul being grieved, that means upset or annoyed, <laughs> kind of annoyed. He, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out the same hour. The immediate effect, of course, was that this girl was freed from this demon. She was restored to her mind. And I firmly believe that she accepted Christ. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. If someone has a, an evil spirit or something that's cast out, it, the only way it can be cast out is if it's replaced with the Holy Spirit. And so we would see that here in this young girl, and she would have been in her right mind, and God's power was revealed over Satan once again. And I'm so thankful for that, that his power is greater. So even if you are oppressed and you're feeling depressed and you feel like, man, there's a spiritual warfare all around me, God, I got to let you know Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is more powerful than anything that you might be going through. And we see that here in this girl. But Satan is never done, right? He's never done. So look what happens in verse 19. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them.
the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Now these guys were enraged because they lost their source of income. Think about it. I mean, what kind of dirtbags were these guys, right? That they, that they were mad that this eight-year-old possessed girl is not possessed anymore. They, and they were mad because they had lost their income. And, and so they go to where they know they'll make the most, most noise. They go to the accused Paul and Silas. Notice what they called them of being Jews. Did you see that? They, they in a Roman colony were like, these guys are Jews. They are not of us. They're trying to cause problems. And so they put that on there. They accuse them of, uh, they're, they're, they're doing things that we would never do. Look, it says, teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither observe being Romans. They're, they're trying to stir things up. They're trying to break down our system. And they said the right things. And so people got pretty fired up about it. Look at verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. They had like this outer coat and they just popped it off and like, it's beaten time is what they basically said. And they got ready. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, first of all, we see them beaten and they're beaten by these magistrates. I got a, an illustration uh, based off of archaeology of what a magistrate would look like. Now, I want you to notice that thing that he's carrying over his shoulder all nonchalantly, like it's a guitar, you know, he's going out to play a song or something. Uh, what that was is what they would carry around with them to dish out punishment. And I want you to notice that right there in the top is an axe. You see that? And so it was a bundle of reeds uh, that were bundled tightly together, and then an axe would be inserted. That was if they needed to uh, mete out maybe a more severe punishment. So like, oh, you know, cut off your hand or behead somebody or cut off a finger, whatever the punishment would be. But a lot of times the punishment was what we saw here, which was a beating. And so they would take out the axe, thankfully, they would put it to the side, they would take off their outer cloak and they would bundle those sticks up and they would just start wailing on people. And that's what they did. They beat Paul and Silas mercilessly. And then it says that they put them in the stocks. Now you think of like, you know, medieval times, like the stocks, you know, people throwing watermelons or tomatoes. It wasn't like that at all. The stocks in Roman prisons were for the legs and they, would, they had multiple holes and they would try to spread your legs as far as possible. You know, you ever like done a splits by accident? <laughs> okay, that's what they would do. And they would spread it out and then they would lock it in place. And so all night long, imagine your hips and I mean the pain that you would be in. And that's what they would do. And so they beat them. They don't clean them up. They don't give them medical attention. They immediately put them in a filthy prison. Roman prisons were disgusting on purpose. And they lock them up and they're there in this prison. Rough situation. Rough situation. If you can just imagine yourself being there all bloodied, beaten up, and then now in the stocks. And then we come to verse 25, which to me is probably one of the greatest passages in Scripture on how to face suffering. <laughs> if you want to know how to face suffering, look at this verse. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Such great details here. They prayed they sang. You say, it says at midnight. Well, they probably couldn't sleep. I don't know if I could sleep with that kind of pain. They prayed, they sang. And then it says, it gives us an interesting detail that the other prisoners heard them. The other prisoners heard them. You know, they didn't demand their phone call. <laughs> they didn't call for their lawyer. They didn't uh, demand that they be treated better. Like Peter slept peacefully in prison, Paul and Silas prayed and sang, which to us is an expression of faith and of peace in the Lord. Job tells us that he gives us a song in the night, a song in the night. 
You want to know how to face the troubles that you find yourself in? You want to know how to face the difficulties and the personal turmoil that you're going through right now? The answer is right here. Pray and sing your way through it. You ever have trouble sleeping? Last night, I couldn't sleep. I don't know what it was. I was tossing and turning, and I, I'm like, I got to sleep. Church is coming. I got to sleep, right? And, uh, and I was tossing and turning, and you know what I did? I do this often. I just started praying. And then I woke up, and it was morning. What do you know, right? <laughs> started praying. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's just the way to go, to pray and to sing your way through it. And it says that the other prisoners heard, which means they would have caught a visible expression of a testimony that they'd probably never seen before. In a prison, those who'd been there maybe for a, a few months were used to the screams and the cries of anguish, the cursing, the yelling at the guards, the how dare you treat me like this. Instead, they hear singing and they hear praises. It would have been singing, of course, probably the Psalms, quoting the Old Testament, quoting scripture to one another, pouring their hearts out to each other in prayer, praying for each other. Paul praying, Lord, please help Silas right now. He's in so much pain and Silas praying for Paul. And Lord, I know he's already been stoned recently and he's still hurting from the stoning. And now, Lord, he's beaten and he's struggling. And Paul, are you still breathing? And, you know, praying for one another and, and encouraging one another in a prison here. And these other prisoners listening and then God steps in and God begins to do a miracle. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loose. That means, I mean, the stocks popped off, and the chains broke, and the doors swung open. You know, everything came open. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword, and he would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. You know, for this jailer, now, now we shift the scene to this jailer here. He was, he was in the prison. They had to stay there overnight to make sure nobody escaped. And imagine being waking out of the sleep and it's an earthquake and you, and you get up and you run and you look and all the prison doors are open and you're immediately thinking, that guy's a murderer, that guy's a murderer, that guy's a murderer. They're on the loose, right? And, and, and you hear the chains and you hear people maybe yelling or cheering or whatever he hears. And immediately his first reaction in that moment was to take his sword and to go to kill himself. You see that? Kill himself. The situation that he was in was a fatal situation. As a Roman soldier, someone under the law of Rome there in Philippi, if you allowed a prisoner to escape, that was your life. That was your life. And so rather than facing trial and then death in any way, he decided, you know what, there's no way out of this. No one's going to care if I said, there was an earthquake. Nobody's going to care uh, what excuse I have. I lost prisoners this day. The whole prison is open. The gates are open. I, I have no other choice. I'm without hope. I'm going to take my own life. And he says that he grabs his sword, and I'm sure he put it towards himself. And it's in that moment that a voice comes out through the rubble of the jail. At that moment, a voice comes out uh, through the, the dust of the earthquake. And I want you to see in verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm. I love that. He says, don't hurt yourself, for we are all here. Think about the power of that moment. This man is, is without hope. He is going to take his own life. And Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We are all here today. We are all here. I want to speak to those of you today who feel like you have no hope right now. I want to talk to you who feel like your past mistakes are a death sentence to your future. I want to talk to those of you who are so lost in your sin that you feel that God cannot save you, or to those that are so despondent that right now you yourself are in a moment where you've even considered harming yourself. 
Can I encourage you today, don't do yourself any harm. We are here. I am here. God is here for you. Man, to be in a position where you've considered hurting yourself, if you've ever been in that position, my heart breaks for you. But I got to tell you, you have a lot to live for. And this man who, who thought all hope was gone, and maybe some of you feel that way, like all hope is lost. Listen, don't do yourself any harm. We are here, okay? God is here. If you're a Christian, don't, don't live as a victim in your past any longer. Don't separate yourself from your church family. Don't separate yourself from God because you feel like, what's the point? You have a reason to live. God has given you a reason to change. And more than anything, you have a God who loves you so much that sometimes he shakes up your world to get your attention. And sometimes he has to rattle some things in your life and to even put you to the point where you feel like you're hopeless so that you will depend completely on him. And that's what we see here where this hardened Roman jailer about to take his life, maybe at the end of everything for him, we see his life radically changed and not only changed, but we also see him given life because of the gospel. Point number three, the gospel gives life to a hardened Roman uh, jailer. Verse 29, he called for a light. <laughs> Somebody bring me a light. <laughs> and he sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, sirs. The only time this question is asked in scripture, what must I do? One of the only times, what must I do to be saved? So he calls for a light. He goes in. Paul and Silas said, hey, it's okay. We're all in here. All the prisoners are there. Maybe they were surrounding Paul. I think the prisoners recognized that this was a miraculous situation. <laughs> you know, like, wait a minute. For the first time, someone's praying and singing in prison and there's an earthquake. What do you know? I'm sure they're all writing it down for later on. You know, next time I'm arrested, I'm going <laughs> to do this. I'm sure they had all heard about the Python spirit. They had heard about this forbidden Jewish religion. I believe maybe Paul, knowing Paul, had probably already witnessed to this guard. Had already witnessed to him, maybe as he was locking him in the stocks. As he says, hey, man, I just want you to know Jesus loves you. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's a man who died for your sins. And not only was he a man, but he was God. And he rose from the dead. And he loves you and he cares for you. Click, you know, as he's locking him in the stocks. Maybe he had already given him testimony. But either way, this is the greatest question that any man can ask. What must I do to be saved? But I want you to notice what Paul does not say, first of all. Paul does not say, well, let me out of prison and you can be saved. <laughs> he doesn't point to a work. He doesn't say, hey, man, you need, to, you need to stop being a jailer. You need to stop working for the Romans. Come work for us. He didn't say that. He didn't point to a religion. He didn't say, hey, well, first things first, you got to be a Jew. And it involved a few, a few things. <laughs> Just so you know. Uh, that's the first. You got to do that. And once you're a Jew, you know, once, you, once you're part of it, then you'll be saved. No, no. What does he do? He points him to the only one who can save him. Look at verse 31. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're asking that question today, what must I do to be saved? It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Paul, uh, Paul opens it up and says, listen, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And if you go tell your family about it and all of those in your household, they can be saved as well. He's echoing the words of Jesus in John 3, 36. It says, he that believeth on the Son hath eternal or everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
Peter, uh, speaking of Jesus in Acts chapter 4, said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Church, there is no other way to be saved except through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what he's emphasizing here to him. He says, What must I do? How, how can I receive salvation? Believe on Jesus Christ. It is the answer back then, and it is the answer today for our lost and dying world. It is only in Jesus Christ and in him alone today. And if you have never placed your faith and trust in him, today's the day to do that. And he is the one that you trust with your salvation. Well, very soon the whole household heard the gospel. They believed it. And, and they were all baptized. And, uh, and what we see here in verse 32 through verse number 34 is really special. It says, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So in case you were wondering if because the jailer was saved, then therefore his wife was saved and his kids were saved, you know, just because of perpetual salvation that goes through the house, that's not what it is. Look, here's, here it says this right here. All that they spoke the word to him and then they spoke the word to those that were in his house, okay? And he took them the same hour of the night Look at this. This is so beautiful. And he washed their stripes and was baptized, maybe in the same well, in the same pool of water that he washed Paul and Silas's stripes in. He and all his straightway, I mean, they were right away. They were baptized. They proclaimed that they believed. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. What a vivid picture of transformation. No longer does this jailer view these men as uh, uh, prisoners. Instead, we see him caring for them as brothers in Christ in a moment. That is the transformation power of the gospel, that he can go from putting these guys in more pain and making sure to inflict pain upon them to just within a few moments of accepting Christ, uh, taking care of them washing them, uh, caring uh, for, their, for their wounds, and then showing them hospitality, feeding them, bringing them to his home. This hardened Roman jailer, shaken by a miracle, was converted to faith in Jesus Christ because of the proclaimed gospel. What a reminder that no one is beyond the reach of God's hand. Nobody is beyond salvation through Jesus Christ. It also highlights for us the unifying power as God unites all of these different people that we've just covered into a local body of believers. And they begin to serve one another as brothers and sisters with a common mission. I want to close this story by beginning in verse 35. And when it was day, remember I told you to remember that Philippi is a Roman colony? I'm going to tell you why I gave you all that info at the beginning right now. And when it was day, the magistrates, those are the ones who beat him, right? The magistrates sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told the saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. He says, hey, Paul, Silas, it's all good. You guys are free. You can go ahead and you can go in peace. Verse 37, but Paul said to them, wait a minute, why does it say? And they went in peace. <laughs> Look at this. Paul said unto them, they have beaten us <laughs> openly, uncondemned, <laughs> being Romans. Now, here's the key phrase. He says, they have beaten us. Un, un, uncondemned and openly, and I am a Roman. And everybody went, ooh. They have cast us into prison. And now they do thrust us out privily. as like privately. Now you just say like, oh, go your way. He says, nay, very. He says, no, no, no. Let them come themselves and take us out of prison is what he's saying. He said, I'm not going to sneak out the back door. I want those magistrates who beat me to come here and hold my hand and lead me out of this prison and through the town. 
And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared. Look at that. When they heard that they were Romans. You say, what is, what is going on here, okay? Why is Paul challenging the, this authority in this way? Why is he being so uh, uh, open about it? He, here's why. Paul's, the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen gave him some privileges. One of those privileges is that you could not be beaten in public without a trial. You could not. Like, you, you can't. <laughs> and, uh, and so their beating of him meant that it was an illegal act, it was wrong. They could not do that under Roman law. Now, this is interesting. Only about 5% of the Roman Empire actually had Roman citizenship. Think about that. Only 5%. Everybody else either was working towards Roman citizenship or they didn't have an option to become a Roman citizen. And so those that carried citizenship like the Apostle Paul did, I mean, that was a, that was a hot commodity, <laughs> Roman citizenship. In fact, if you impersonated a Roman citizen, that was punishable by death. Just to impersonate. I don't know how you impersonate a Roman citizen. Yes, I'm a Roman. Okay, that's punishable by death. By death. So, I mean, it's a big deal here. And, uh, and, and so, what it did is it afforded him some privileges of protection. Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony. But what that meant is that it could also be removed from their city. And so, some of the protections and some of the, the, uh, the, the benefits that came along with that could have been removed. And so, as the news that Paul was a Roman, that he'd been beaten openly and beaten without judgment in the streets, when it reached the higher authorities, that's why they feared, because they're like, our colony status is in jeopardy here, because we just broke Roman law as a colony. And, and Paul, of course, had, had a differing aspect, I think, of course. He was caring for the church, right? He was thinking about those believers that were there. And Paul knew that if he just snuck out the back door and left and never came back, guess what people would assume? Oh, he was guilty. He was guilty of what they accused him of. He was guilty. He was trying to, he's trying to mess things up. But now they're going to bring him through and the magistrates are going to take him out of prison. You know, uh, Mr. Paul, Mr. Silas, would you please come with me? <laughs> I'm so sorry. We have this, uh, we have some new clothes for you here. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. And we have the, you know, and are you hungry? Are you hungry? Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, everything, everything is, I'm sorry the whole way. And as they bring them through and the people in the city there begin to see that they had made a mistake, that they were in fact, uh, that they were right. Here's what happened. The leaders in Philippi would think twice before they disturbed the church in Philippi again. So Paul was caring for the church. He was protecting them. Verse 39, and they came and besought him and brought him out and desired them to depart out of the city. Please leave the city. Uh, we're so sorry. Please leave. <laughs> but look what Paul does. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. He said, now I have a few more things I need to do. And he went over to Lydia's house. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. They went to the house there and encouraged the believers before departing to Thessalonica, which be their next stop as we're going to see in the next few weeks. Man, imagine the joy at Lydia's house, right? When they came and I'm sure Lydia and then Lydia meeting the Roman jailer for the first time and oh, I've seen you around before and wow, you're, you're saying the corner was that little girl in the corner there and, and maybe Lydia, I imagine Lydia would be the kind of person to say, you know what? I'll care for you. How, how much do your masters want? I'll take care of it. I'm, I'll care for you. And her, see that girl there in her right mind. And as they came together, and I'm sure tears were shed. I'm sure they laughed at the story. I'm sure they said, Paul, I can't believe you called out those magistrates like that. And, and, uh, and, and you know, maybe talked about the earthquake and what it was like. And he told the story. I, I, I had to take my own life. And his wife was there. I'm so glad you didn't take your own life. And, you know, and, and just sharing the story. And it would have culminated in praise there as they were comforted and they were encouraged together. What a church plant. 
<laughs> that's a church plant story for the ages. <laughs> that's a good origin story. Lydia, this wealthy uh, merchant, the ex-Pythoness uh, girl, <laughs> the ex-Python girl, and this Philippian jailer, and probably a few ex-inmates of the jail there, I would, would imagine, were a part of this church, this first European church, the rich, the poor, the slave, the free, the male, the female, the all one in Jesus Christ. And that church was established in Europe with this motley crew of people through the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Listen, church, the gospel has power, but it only has power because of what it represents, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And we've got to secure that in our hearts. And when we secure that in our hearts, we can say, like Romans chapter one, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? For it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The all-encompassing gospel has power because of Jesus Christ. And we've got to keep the gospel in focus. We've got to keep the gospel in focus. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.